Is this a, what are we going on here? Is this like a, should I undo this? No? Curtis will figure it out. We're going to deal with it. Listen, if you were in the early church, this would have been great, okay? So stop complaining. Um, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Am I off? I'm just off right now, aren't I? I am on. Does that sound like, okay, cool. So Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Great to be with you all. We're a little scattered this morning, but that being said, open up there. If you have a phone, we think that counts too, so open up to your Bible app. Turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 18 today. Now, we are uh, two weeks into a new series in the book of Philippians. If you're not familiar, let me give you this kind of 35,000-foot view of what this is. The book of Philippians is a book in the New Testament. It's a letter from Paul, the apostle, early leader in the church, to the church that he helped start in the city of Philippi. Okay? Now, he writes back because he is desiring to see them grow in their faith to continue to expand their work there in Asia, uh, sorry, in Eastern Europe, and to bless their community and their region. That's the whole purpose of the letter. What we get to see today is get into Paul's heart a little bit. So last week we saw his affection for the Philippian church. We saw his love for the Philippian church. We saw his ultimate kind of 35,000 foot view desire for the Philippian church. But now we get to unpack his heart and see what motivates and drives this man to write the things and live the way that he lives. Now, one of the things that I think we have to know, and we said this last week, that if we are to read, interpret, and apply the book of Philippians well to our context, is we have to make sure that we are putting on the correct lens with which we read it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, in this world that we live in today, we have this, this lens that's given to us by culture that says, this is the way you should interpret your life. And generally it is, you should interpret your life through what's best for you, okay? And you are the sole and center focus of the universe and the world. And so if you care for you, when you read this, I'm telling you, you're going to read it wrong. Like, we're, we're not going to be changed, we won't understand well, nor we pursue the things it talks about in this letter if we are the lens with which we interpret what is good, what is right, and what is helpful for us. And so we push back against that. See, what the book of Philippians, what the Bible gives us is a certain identity and calling that it means to be a Christian. It's a certain type of life that's embodied by the life of Jesus, and his life was filled with radical love. And when we don't live this way, it affects our witness to the world. And Paul knew that. He knew that when we live this way as, as just so different and so opposite to the calling of the Scriptures and the calling of God and of Jesus, that it actually hurts the witness of the church to the world. Now, I want, you, I want to, has anyone ever eaten at Red Curry? Just by show of hands, you guys eating there? Phenomenal place. And vegan, which was a shocker to me, because I don't eat a lot of that, okay? And so... So I go in there, and, and I just thought about this for a moment as we were prepping this week, as I began to think through red curry, which is phenomenal food again, so don't hear that it's not phenomenal, because it's phenomenal. Um, but I imagine, what if I went in there, and this vegan restaurant, and it's very, it's very vegan, it feels very vegan, I don't know what that means, it just, like, you know, it just feels vegan-ish, right? And for any of you vegans in the room, if that's offensive, I really do apologize, I'm just talking out of my butt right now. So um, imagine it's vegan-ish in the room, and you walk in, and then there's the owner, uh, and she's sitting in the back, and again, she looks very vegan, and so, and I don't know what that means, but I'm saying, like, just imagine whatever you think that would mean, not oppressing the worker bee, that kind of stuff, and so uh, there, there she is just sitting there, um, and then she's chowing, okay, on a giant turkey leg, right? Like, you'd be like, that doesn't add up, right? I, 
it begins to hurt the witness of the restaurant that vegan eating is the way that we should eat, no? It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't add up. So hear me, here's the deal. As I began to think through that, this is what we do with the world. The world sees oftentimes the church. This is crazy. Should I just turn it off? I literally was like throwing up all day yesterday, so it's better I don't scream right now. So um, I think oftentimes the way that the world looks at the church, it says that I know what some of this says, and that's not you. Okay? Like, like I, I know, and, and maybe, hear me, like, I'm not saying that the, the pagan, the non-Christian world, those outside the church, know how to interpret this better than we do, but hear me, they, they know the verse exist in here that talks about the way we are to treat people, the way we are to love, the way we are to sacrifice. They know about Jesus enough to know that guy laid down his life for the sake of his enemy. And then they're like, hey, that's not y'all. Now, hear me. There are, so, there are great things that the church does. This is not a church bash session. The church is doing phenomenal and great things all across the world. But we have to reckon with the reality that our world might look to us and say, hey, uh, you're eating a turkey leg, man. Like that, 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 that's, not, that's not fitting. And so what Philippians does for us is the same thing Paul desired to do for the early church, which is to say, hey, listen up. The world is watching. This is a crucial time. We're talking about 60 AD. Nero's about to destroy the temple. There's massive persecution against the church, and they need to be faithful to the scriptures that they might present the gospel to the world because that's their identity and that's their mission. And so this is the purpose for what we get, Philippians, and then we jump into it first as well. Now, one last side note before we jump into the text. Notice this. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. He's been in prison before. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He hasn't seen his friends in years. Okay, He's probably still sitting in the guilt of his past. And so you would think that a man in this place would be somewhat depressed somewhat downtrodden, but we pick it up in verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, in the midst of all of that reality of his life, Paul rejoices. And he says, I will rejoice. I'll continually rejoice. I'll continually press into, even though my situation is not what the world would look at and say, yeah, that's great. I'm going to celebrate, and I will be filled with joy. Now, now just for a moment, this is... A very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around in a culture that does whatever we possibly can to remove pain and suffering from life. That we would not have to experience any hardship and that there is no use for hardship, which I would say is just false. And so in the midst of all of this, Paul rejoices. Now, why does he rejoice? One, I think he knows he's getting delivered. Now, here's what's interesting. As you look in the text... This deliverance word could mean one of two things, and, and theologians for a long time have gone back and forth on, is he talking about this eternal deliverance? Like, hey, one day I'm going to die, I'm going to be with Jesus, it's going to be all good, it doesn't matter what's happening right now. 
Um, the other deliverance is, hey, no, I know by the prayers and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll get out of prison, okay? Like this has happened before. There's been earthquakes that have got me out of prison. All sorts of amazing things have happened. So one way or another, I'm getting out of this situation. One way or another, I will be delivered. And you see this work itself out through the text, this true dilemma of Paul of, do I want to die or do I want to live? And he's going to say that both are good in just a moment. But then he comes with this, what we'd say is probably like his life motto, okay? Which is there in verse 1, which is to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which, let's be honest, not a ton of our life mottos are that. Not a ton of us say, yeah, die, that's gain. You don't see that stitch in a lot of your grandma's pillows, okay? <laughs> to live is Christ and to die is gain. No, no what, what, what does that mean, to live is Christ? I mean, the die is gain, that makes sense. It's better probably to get to heaven, be with Jesus, okay? To live is Christ. It means that life is Christ. Christ is life. Now, you've heard people say this about different things. For me, growing up, it was sports, right? Like, sports is life. Like, I would say that to friends and family. And here's what I mean by that, is literally other things in my life would be sacrificed for the sake of my love for sports. All I wanted was to grow up and follow my brother. My brother went and played collegiate, uh, collegiate soccer at College of Charleston. So I was like, oh, my brother did it. I want to go do that. So from age five on, watching my brother be so good at this sport, I dedicated myself to the same thing. And so what did I often do? My friends would be out till, you know, midnight, 1, 2, 3 a.m. And said I would be at home, 9, 10, so I could wake up and train in the morning. And, and so here's the thing. You sacrifice the things that are on the outside of the thing that you love. Things can fall by the wayside and you do not care because there's something you love more than those things. What Paul is saying, it's not that he doesn't want to be out of prison. It's not that he doesn't want to be with his friends. It's not that he doesn't want to be beaten. He's saying, in comparison to what my life is, which is Jesus Christ, the rest of this stuff, my physical health, my, my, my emotional health, that stuff will be sacrificed for the sake of him. And so Paul sets this example for us, and then we're going to continue on and see how this unpacks for us here in 2018. So he fleshes the motto out in verse 22. Let's keep going. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, but that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This dilemma with Paul between life and death, what does life mean for him? It's to act like Jesus, which is what? Fruitful labor for who? Others. Paul's whole thing, when Jesus is the ultimate thing for life, the reason why Paul wants to stay, the reason why there's a dilemma is not, hey, well, maybe life will get better for me. I want to stay because I want to serve you. Okay? I, I want to stay because I want to serve you. It, it's not about me. This is not about what I want. It's about wanting to bless you. Now, not a great wedding vow. Okay? Hey, babe. 
I'm here because you need me, <laughs> not because this is best for me, right? But when the other, other option is being with God forever, it's an honor for him to say this. To live for me in this dilemma would be that I get to continue to come alongside you and bless you. And he's going to talk about how in just a bit. But he says that to die is gain, that death would be even far better. Why? Because he get to be with Jesus. And I'm going to be honest. I remember reading this like four years ago. And I remember asking myself the question, like, does Paul know something I don't know? And here's what I mean by that. I've been a Christian now for 15 years. I, mean, you know, I got saved in college, whatever. But like when I hear that man, all he wants, that he considers better than anything this world can offer, it, hear me, he doesn't say heaven. He, he doesn't say that, oh, I want to be in a place where there's no more pain or brokenness or sadness or tears. He doesn't say, I want to be in a place where all things are great and my body is restored and I won't be beaten. He just says, you know be better than anything this world can have? Is if I get to be with Jesus. Not the things that Jesus offers, not the environment that he lives in, but just Jesus himself. You know be better than anything this world could ever give me would be just to hang out with Jesus. And I remember, like, thinking through that and being like, God, that's not, I, I couldn't say that. Like, I, I love Jesus. I, I can't wait to talk to Jesus, meet Jesus, like, shake his hand, say thank you a thousand times. But to just want to be with my Savior. And I remember being really convicted in that moment four years ago, just thinking, like, well, why, why is that? What? What is it that I'm missing that Paul seems to know and engage with? And I tell you, I haven't figured it out, but I think it has something to do with just believing that he's alive, real, and he's with me right now. And that the joy that I experience today is because of the presence of God in this world. It's not of myself. I didn't just conjure up happiness today especially in the midst of the broken stuff that Kate was sharing. Like, how do you, in the midst of hearing the depravity and the brokenness of this world, how can we exist with some semblance of joy? And I began to realize that this, this, this idea of, of Jesus being ever-present and this, not just like he did this one great thing for me 2,000 years ago, but that literally every day, hear me, Christian, if you're here and you love Jesus, every day, Day, he's present with you. And every day, he advocates and sets up and authors this world. And so you can be present with him now. And we can know him now. We can talk to him now. And so ultimately, what I revealed is that my prayer life was terrible. I kept longing for this day where I could talk to Jesus in heaven. Because my prayers were distant. They were kind of this moment for me to say a handful of things at the end of the day. But they weren't, God, let's converse. Let's talk. Let's do life. Throughout this series, we're going to see Paul really push the people in Philippi to talk and to be present and to pray with Jesus. 
And so hear me, there's a lot coming out of this text, and we're about to hit like a really kind of imperative part of the text that's going to call us to some changes in life. But at the heart of it has got to be the way we know and love Christ. And it starts with prayer. It starts with talking to him. So hear me, if you're here and you don't pray and you love Jesus, okay, you, you, you need to work on that. And I know that's not as simple as like, ah, just do it better. Like, don't hear me. Come and let's talk. Like, it's, it's a journey to learn how to grow and be able to talk to Jesus in those type of ways. Okay? That's a nugget. Let's keep going. Um, he gives three reasons for, their, for his reason to want to stay. Three reasons. The first one is their progress. The second one is their joy in the faith. And the third is that they'll glory in Jesus. Their progress, his desire for the church is that they would grow, that they would not stay the same. And again, is that why we gather, that we might grow to look more like Jesus? Their joy in the faith that, again, that they would celebrate and have joy even in the midst of persecution and that you'll glory in Jesus, that ultimately Jesus will get all praise that he deserves. This is Paul's desire. Now, here's why we, we kind of zoomed to that first part. Here's why. Um, I think we can look at what Paul did and say, but that's Paul's life motto, right? This is the way Paul lived his life, Vince. Like, that's not how I have to live my life, right? Like, we don't have, he's just a human being. We don't have to take his example and follow everything Paul did because I'm not called, you guys aren't apostles, I'm not an apostle, okay? I didn't meet Jesus on a road where he came out of the heavens and, and beamed himself and showed up. So a lot of somebody look at that and say, well, that's, that's Paul, though. Like, what, what does this have to do with us today? And luckily enough, Paul would so write to what his desires for the church was. And so this next passage should open us up and ask some really difficult questions about who we are as the church, who we are as Christians, and are we actually living a life that God calls us to. And so verse 27 says this. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I come and see you or I'm absent and may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, it's interesting the way that that text starts off, because Paul says, again, in this, this moment of dishonesty and bearing his own soul, look, I'd rather, like, I'm in this fight to either spend eternity with Jesus in heaven or stay here and minister to you. And he's, I will gladly choose to stay here and minister to you, if only. You, know, you notice there's like this, this condition on Paul's end of like, my desire would be even to stay and not be with Jesus forever, if only you would live this way. It's a really heavy calling from Paul and from the scriptures to the church. Would you live this way and by doing so prove that me not going to Christ now was worth it? And so he gives us four different ways, four reasons or four ways that we see a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first one is that it would be Christ-centered. That in everything, it would revolve around him. 
I'm going to contend with us all that we live very you-centered lives, me-centered lives, us-centered lives. Where again, I'm at the center of the picture. And hear me, the calling from the scriptures is not that. It's not calling you to be at the center of your decision-making, you to be at the center of your world. And hear me, that, that sounds so anti what we know to be best in this world. Because you and I grow up in a culture that says, no, you're autonomous and you make your own decisions. And, and the more we press into that, the more we're finding, no, we treat each other terribly. We, we do things that even harm the people closest to us. Now, some of you are really great people, and this is not saying you're bad people. It's saying let's just be honest with the plight of our world. We've had thousands of years to figure out how to treat each other well, and it seems to just get worse. The more we make our, saying like, forget objective morality, forget absolutes, forget any of that. Let me make decisions based on my own compass. I'm telling you, the compass is broken. And the evidence is ample across our world. And so what, what Paul's saying is like a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. The life worthy of what Jesus went to the cross, died, and rose again for would be that he would be on the throne of your life. Verity and I have been painting the, uh, this new house we just moved into. And so when you paint, right, there's all sorts of different paintbrushes you can use. When you want to edge, you have like an edging one. When you want to get well, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, you have a sprayer. We just bought one of those. Doesn't work that great. We could be using it wrong, but it doesn't work great. Um, but you have all these tools at your disposal to paint a nice wall or whatever. And the other day when we were doing this, I began to just kind of think through again. Like this, when, you're, when you know you're going to preach something, this stuff just comes in your head. And so I'm preaching, I'm thinking... This is what we've done with Jesus. What we do is, we, we, you and I, listen, what we do is we look at our life. You walk through life, and then you look at the tools at your disposal for what will best handle the situation based on your worldview. And so what you do sometimes, what I do sometimes, is we pick up Jesus. We're like, yeah, you know what? Jesus will best fit how this will best be for my life. And so Jesus is nothing more than another brush laid upon a table for you to gather up when you're ready to use him, when I'm ready to use him. When the reality is, is that Jesus is never the tool, he is the painter. Right? Like, like he's the one that's supposed to make the decisions. And yet somehow what we've done, we've made ourselves the painter, and so then we use him as a tool to be utilized for our greatest benefit. We need to come down. What Christ being the center of our lives means is we got to hop down off that throne and we got to let Jesus ascend to it where the decisions that get made in life get made based on what he, not just, listen, not just he says, but he is. Because Christ is life and life is Christ. We begin to think through each and every decision. It's like, well, how would, I mean, like, again, we've said this here before, but like the WWJD bracelet, like, again, kind of cheesy, but really true. How would Jesus love this person? How would Jesus handle this broken situation in our world and country? 
How would Jesus call me to love my enemy, my neighbor? How would Jesus call me to well up in generosity to give to those who do not have? How would, how would, how would, how would Jesus seek to insert all of the situations of life? That's the way, hear me, that's the way those who wish to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ should live their life. Is that the life we want to live? That's the question. The second one says that we be united with the church. It says, on one hand, we be one spirit and one mind, and on the other side, it said that we would uh, strive side by side, holding hands, locking. In other words, that one mind, okay, one spirit, in other words, internally, we would be all on the same page. We would be moving forward internally, and then also striving side by side externally. Meaning, we want to live lives worthy of the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The division has to stop. The bickering and the fighting amidst God's people is foolishness. Like, like we have to begin to see our brothers and sisters in Christ and know it's not just the right thing to do because it's the right... It's literally the gospel-mandated thing to do, to be of one mind and strive hand-in-hand with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, here's what we do. We allow politics. We allow money. We allow a litany of idols to become things that divide us real fast. All of a sudden, we forsake a biblical mandate for you to love and to serve alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ because you disagree with them about a political issue in our nation. That is not a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hear me, it is so rampant. If you have a Facebook page, you know what I'm talking about. Because I have my more progressive liberal friends and they post something and it's filled with either attaboys from their progressive and liberal friends and then a whole bunch of comments from the conservative friends saying how stupid and wrong they are. And the exact same thing happens vice versa. Hear me. This is an issue. We are not united. Okay? The way back is by being a peacemaker. Peacemaking is not getting likes on your Facebook page. It's not putting down a mic drop status that a lot of the people that agree with you are going to love and like. It doesn't do you any good. I guarantee it. A bunch of people that just tell you that when they already agree with you, hey, way to go. And then a bunch of people who don't agree with you that just yell at you, that just breeds greater division. Knock it off. It's just foolishness. And I'm going to be honest, as a staff, like we're standing back and look, we're looking at the next 18 months. We know another election's coming. And I'm going to tell you what, 2015, 16 were like the most difficult, lame years of Anthony and I's life. Because all we did was try and convince half of you that the other half wasn't as bad as you think they are. And it's a little funny, but it's just true. And hear me, it's anti-gospel. 
Now, don't hear any of that and say, Vince doesn't think the issues are important. That's not it at all. It's that when we look at the text, when we look at the scriptures, there's a certain calling for the people of God to be the people of God. And it tells us to be united of one mind and of one spirit. That doesn't mean you can't disagree about fiscal policy. What that means is, is that you need to love one another, lock arms with one another, and be in community with one another, and stop fighting and bickering, because all it does is defame the name of Jesus. Number three. We need to be secured by salvation. Okay? In other words... We need nothing else to give us justification or security in life. And we're going to go real deep into this into chapter 3. And we've said this here before. But hear me, if you are secure in the work of Jesus in your life, you need not seek security from the people around you. If you feel justified and loved by Jesus because of the work he's done, you need not seek love and justification from people around you. Now hear me, a lot of times it's going to come, and it'll be very clear, that stuff is good and a huge part of life. That's why the Bible calls us to treat each other so well, and to sacrifice for one another, and to love one another even when we disagree, to love one another even when they're the enemy. It's because he cares deeply about the way we treat one another. So don't hear that and say, oh, he doesn't think that people need to be nice, or I don't need people to be nice to me. No, no, no. That, I'm saying ultimately, what the Bible tells us is that we can be fully secure in the salvation of Jesus. That forever the eternity is set, and so I need not fear anything of this world. Like Paul's saying, I don't need to fear death. Because if death comes, it's actually a win. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. If people mock me, I get to enter into the life of Christ. Either way, I win. Why? Because I'm secure in the work of God in my life. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we understand the work of God in our lives, that God has saved and continues to save every day, so we need not seek that salvation through lesser idols. The last one, and this one's probably the toughest. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is not just to believe, but to suffer. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, the language is crazy because it's not, oh, and you'll have to do this. Paul literally says, I will grant this to you from God. Like God will grant you not just belief. God will grant you, give you, gift you suffering in this world. Now, let me be very clear. There's lots of like little caveats in this. What's going on for Paul in that moment is when he's calling the church, he's saying, like, listen, in their day, Christians are dying, okay? For the faith. Like people, you're a Christian, you're going to get persecuted. You're going to get crucified. You're going to get imprisoned. These are realities for the early church in the first century. Now, we live in the 21st century America. Not a lot of us dying for the faith in this country. So then what we do is we read that verse and say, oh, well, that didn't pertain. Well, that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit us because, well, we're, we have freedom of religion here, which, praise God, we do. That is a phenomenal thing. 
But we step back and then we, div- we just say, well, then we don't, we don't need to enter into that because we, we have this whole way better system here and that's not a big deal for us. And I'm going to tell you right now that the suffering that we can continuously enter into is any moment we do what Paul has already told us. Where we forsake our own life desires once for the sake of the other. Because for us in our cultural context, let me be honest, that feels like suffering and it feels painful. Let me give you a few examples. If you've ever been in a fight with a friend, a coworker, a spouse, significant other, whatever, right? And you're arguing and you're fighting, okay? And you're contending for yourself and you don't want to lose that fight. What does it feel like, and if you've ever tried to do it, halfway through the fight to say, you know what, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. Is there any more difficult, more painful reality in the world? When you are so set, I didn't do anything wrong. But you could go and you could acknowledge, actually, you know what, I did, I did do this. And you're right, that was me. Regardless of what the other person did or did not do. It feels like pain, Right? Like, if we're on, like, it feels like, oh, God, I hate that. You can do that every day. You don't need to win arguments. Why do you need to win an argument? Why? If not just to prop yourself up. You don't need to win that argument. Can do, what, what good does that do? Let's give another example. Okay. <laughs> Some of us have more money than others. That's just a reality in this world. Kate comes up here and she talks about a, like, a situation that I, and here, I don't even want to assume that no one in here has experienced because maybe some of you have. And if you have, please come talk to us about that. We'd love to come around you. But what we hear about this situation, and we have a couple options. We, we can just disconnect. And that's the easiest we can just say, well, that, that's kind of going on. I get that, but someone else will figure that out. But suffering would look like, yeah, like I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go out to eat as many times this week. I, I don't know if, like here's an interesting thing. Anytime we kind of talk about this, we'll say, we do this Flagstaff 10 thing, right? So you text, you give $10. We've often said that's like two lattes a month that you have to sacrifice. And hear me, like, does that not just feel gross to us? Hey, you might have to give up two lattes this month, church, based on the scriptures. Now, now hear me. Like, if we base it on the, the life that, that, honestly, like, Western world and America has given us, which is a life of significant privilege, of significant wealth, then, yeah, two lattes seems like a big deal. But, but as the church that knows that all provision comes from God, that knows that we don't earn anything, that we are stewards of his good work for his good pleasure and glory, for the sake of his mission in the world, and we have to come up and convince people, hey, sacrifice two lattes? Like, does that not just feel weird? Could you ever see Paul saying that? I was wouldn't have been a latte. I don't know what they were drinking. Like, we, again, here's what I'm saying. This book makes no sense if our lens is American Christianity. 
And we got to pull back the veneer. So then we see, okay, okay, I am called to suffer. That Guess what that means? You're called to suffer. That doesn't mean that you're going to die, right? That doesn't mean that someone's going to nail you to a cross. But, but maybe it means that you don't get to have all the things that you want to have. Maybe that means, okay, that you, don't have to, that you don't get to win every argument, that you don't have to be the most popular, you don't have to wear the best stuff. Now, I hate that we always have to go back and forth on stuff. That doesn't mean you can't have nice things, okay? That doesn't mean you can't go shopping this afternoon. I don't care. But it does mean that we have to start taking the scriptures real. If we are to be the witness to the world, if we are to be the church, if we are to be the people that God is saying, this is what a life worthy of what Christ did looks like. And we say, I'm in. I'm a Christian. I signed up for this. This is me. Christ is my king. He's my Lord. Dang, we, we got to rethink some stuff. Okay? And it's a case-by-case basis. And it's real simple. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus, you're alive. You're real. You're present. You listen. You counsel, Spirit of God. What do you want me to do? And ask and ask and ask. We don't know because we don't ask. Talk to him and ask and then respond. I'll leave you with this last quote. It's from Leonard Ravenhill. And he said this. He said, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Now hear me. That can come across a bit. Are you doing enough to pay back Jesus for what he's done? Don't hear that. Because that's impossible. And that's not what this life is about. We don't do stuff to pay back Jesus. Jesus did it all for us. That's the gospel. He did it all for us. He went to the cross willingly out of love. Sacrificed his life that we might be raised and flourish alongside him and his kingdom. We don't pay him back. But in response to that work, in response to the gospel, in response to consistently dwelling upon what Jesus has done for us. I ask us, are, we, are the things that we are living for worth Christ dying for? And living for, like, are the, are the idols that we've propped up in life, are they anything but Christ? He needs to sit on that throne. Again, as we work through this book, that it would convict us to our core that we would be that peculiar, weird people that the Bible, the early Christians were, that the world would look and say, gosh, man, they, I don't know how they do that stuff. I don't know how they're able to forsake. I don't know how they have so much joy in the midst of suffering. But it must be something worth knowing about. That's our hope. Because we don't gather just for us to have a good time. We gather, we be a faithful presence in the city of Flagstaff. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we take a moment just to remind our own hearts and minds that you are here, and, and God, we, we resonate, or we desire to resonate, I think, with, 
from the words of uh, Paul that he would say to live as Christ and to die as gain, that there's just such a, an affection for you, a love of you, that would then put him in a place where he could call the church to this type of life. God, I pray, I, I, I pray more than anything this morning that, God, we would just, we just know you and the work that you've accomplished. Uh, God, we'd love you. We'd herald you and glorify you and celebrate you and all that stuff. We probably talk to you. And God, just out of a desire to love you, out of a desire of thanksgiving because of the work you've done that, that saves us. God, that then we would run and strive to be a faithful people in this city that comes alongside the hurting and the broken. God, those who are being trafficked, those who are being abused, God, those who are being forgotten and pushed to the sides, those who are being stepped upon, God, those who, whose greed is blinding them, God, be a faithful presence to all people in all places. But Lord, would you sort us out? God, will we be a people that are quick to look inward? Quick to repent. Quick to realize, God, that we can easily succumb to the same sins and the same idols of a broken world. And God, we thank you for the goodness that is in your creation. And God, let us steward it rightly with you as king. And so, Lord, we ask you, even as we respond now, Jesus, what would you have us do? What would you have us do as we respond, as we, as we meditate, as we reflect, as we give? God, what would you have us do to be a faithful presence here in this city? Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.